Continuing, and even a little bit into the fall, until we're finished with them, our sermon series through uh, the Psalms of Ascent, which are these certain books, or certain, uh, certain songs in the Psalms themselves, uh, that Israel sang as they made pilgrimage, uh, season by season at the great festivals up to Jerusalem. So they, were, they would sing these songs as they went up and prepared to meet God and all of his people in his house and to bring their gifts. And... Uh, they have a lot of detail, a lot of range and different themes they discuss. Uh, this morning, I'm doing something just a little bit different. Uh, you wouldn't have noticed if I don't say anything probably, but uh, there are different traditions of preaching. There's one called exegetical, and that just means you like take the verses down and break them down verse by verse. And uh, there can be more thematic ways to preach as well. And sometimes you do what's called a topical sermon, which is you pick a topic and you kind of dig into it and what the Bible says about it and Christianity says about it in general, and maybe look at your text that lens. I'm going to do that a little bit more this morning. I think in general, uh, every sermon is actually a topical sermon because there is some human being that decides what is important to emphasize, and so they take a topic out of it. But I'm, I'm intentionally doing that this morning, and I want to do it because it's a little bit of a difficult psalm. It's a little bit strange to our ears, and I want to pull back a little bit so that we can see the whole vista it takes place in and what its actual purpose is, and we can see more detail in the background. And so I want to start this morning as a reminder that we've been arguing that life for human beings, if you are alive, you've been made by God, he's given you a purpose, and that that purpose is best understood as a pilgrimage toward a sacred destination, a journey, an intentional journey heading toward a special and sacred place. And so I want to start by asking you about place. Think of a place that has deep meaning to you. Where is that place? What does it mean to you? Why does it seem to mean more than some other places? There's something about it, some clue, something that haunts you from it, you wish you could find again, some hope to be back in a place like that. I think of a small estate in a town called Castle Rock, Washington, in Washington State, where as a child, my family often gathered at my paternal grandfather's property. This was a place of always brooding gray sky and cool dampness and the smell of earth and must and wool, blackberry brambles from which we would fill buckets of berries in the summer to make pies, laughter, furtive little rabbits, and the impossible view of Mount Rainier towering over the beautiful fields on the rare sunny days. Above all of this, the warm and sometimes penetrating intimacy of my extended family. But foremost in Castle Rock was what I called the umbrella tree. I wish I knew what kind of species of tree it was. It was this big, giant tree. It almost looked like a huge, slick shrub. It was a magnificent growth with these fat, slick leaves that overlapped to create an unbroken canopy. And you could slip through them like going through an enclosure, like going into the closet through Narnia, and suddenly you were inside of a big empty space in this tree. 
Man, do we have fun there. I remember now, even sometimes on a warm day, when I close my eyes and the sun hits the back of my eyelids, I can remember the feeling coming home from my grandmother's church when she had snuck me off and no one else wanted to go. And we hid this secret together, this magnificent secret that somehow I had accidentally been fed bread and wine that morning for the first time. And it was magic. I had eaten magic somehow. That place, that time, is maybe the closest I've come to feeling truly at home in the world. I don't know how to explain it. It was enchanted. It's always seemed to me supercharged with some sort of meaning at the time and now in my memory, a mystery to be explored, something to beckon me towards something deeper. And I want to ask what's behind this mystery that some places at some times seem to hold deep meaning, that they even seem to mean more than other places sometimes. We're never quite able to capture or control or manufacture the meaning of sacred and special places. But perhaps they're a clue, a haunting, a hope. And yes, at the risk of boring you to tears over and over again and sticking with the theme that we've been giving, I think it's a clue to shalom. So what I just tried to describe there, that sense of being purely at home in a place with a certain people at a certain time and being in the moment there, now, with in wonderment and delight. This is my best description of the subjective experience of shalom as an individual now, here in this world, this side of the new heavens and new earth. This is the best way I can describe what shalom feels like sometimes in our broken experience. That every place God makes has meaning, but here in this world, some places currently mean more than others, and that we are called We have been since Adam and Eve. We have been as the church. We are called to making this world more and more place-y. Something rich with clues and hints about shalom. To see shalom worked into and out of and through the places around us. We are called to help shalom this world. Yes, to pilgrim towards it. But then to build its culture in as we go along As we're walking through this very world, this creation, and I do mean trees and oceans and places that people have made up arbitrary borders and called nations and all this sort of stuff, this very earthy thing that you walk on has meaning, and our calling is to find solidarity with it, to steward it, to cultivate it, and to protect it from all the forces that would rip shalom out of it. We are to be a part of God's re-shaloming creation. And we know this because we are displaced, right? From our new neighbors, the thousands of them that are here in exile or hope for a better life as migrants in our city. All of us actually, in some respect, are displaced. This is one of the ways we understand the effects of the fall and of sin in the world. That much of our experience in this world is marked by all sorts of non-placiness, non-clues, non-depth, non-meaning. In fact, sometimes anti-shalom. From simple things like architectural boredom and blandness to urban destitution to the boredom of strip malls or shrapnel in poppy fields. Perhaps you love your cubicle, but maybe you don't like how dehumanizing it is. 
when there's so many of them at the top of a skyscraper somewhere. It doesn't mention gulags and tenements and concentration camps and using our homes simply and only as a consumer product or the threatening wilderness out there or simply just not being at home in our own skin, what Walker Percy called the ordinary malaise of a Wednesday afternoon. See, part of what I mean by this is I can't go to Castle Rock anymore. They sold it. They parceled it out from what I understand. Of course, we're not disallowed access anymore, not being the owners. I even heard that they cut down the umbrella tree. And of course, even if I were to go back, I'm not the same wonder-filled child that I was at the time. It would probably be complicated. And so too often we find ourselves fractured from place, from this world, alienated from home and a sense of belonging, no idea or belief that where we are has any meaning. One of my favorite poems of all time, it led to a nickname I was given by the founders of this network of churches, Shookfoil, because they found out I had a blog when blogs first began, and one of the first things I did was name it after this poem and also talk about it. And they, when I got here, they were teasing me, so they called me Shookfoil. That's one of my nicknames. It's a book, or it's a poem called God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. I'm just going to read you the beginning of it. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and it wears man's smudge and it shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. You see, like a thick smog, we live in this life and we start to get choked out and exhausted sometimes by our sense of not being at home here. And that's when we start to complain. Or we just say, ah, that whole pilgrimage to a shalom or a special place, that's just like fantasy. I'm going to make a little kingdom right here. I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going to get it as good as I can. I'm going to get the people I like around and keep everyone else out. You know, it's the part of the road trip when you start to complain when things are hard. You've been a kid or you've had kids in a car with you on a long road trip. Are we there yet? Do we have to keep going? I don't like it here. It's hot. Turn on the thing. Turn down the music. Change the song, you know. It's hard to keep persevering towards shalom, to believe that we are meant to experience it, that it's meant to come into this world, that the kingdom of heaven is meant to be here as it is, or to be here on earth as it is in heaven. We have to keep the faith, as Pastor Eugene Peterson, who writes about these psalms, calls it. He says, we are called to a long obedience in the same direction, to keep up the long journey towards shalom. And so here is a song for this part of the journey. When you're weary, when you're worn out, and especially when you feel overwhelmed, the forces of anti-shalom are more powerful than God himself, or at least of your ability to recognize or participate in any modicum of shalom. When you are overwhelmed by the forces of anti-shalom, this is the song that we are called to sing. That we are meant to continue to pilgrimage towards shalom, to seek it. And yet we are often finding ourselves short of it or persecuted by those who are, yes, hell-bent 
on making sure shalom doesn't make this world our home. See, as I've just described, God made the world good. That's the first words really of his in the whole Bible. So let it be and then it's good. Let it be and then it's good. Let that be. It's good. Let humans mean be, be very, very good. He loves everything he's made. And yet, we have bent it. We have broken it. We have exploited it. I could read to you again Genesis 1 and 2. If you're unfamiliar, you just, just trust me real quick. God makes human beings and he said, I am making you the king and queen, or better, the prince and princess under me, the king, for this beautiful, beautiful castle and cathedral and theater I've made for you. Now go out and do what? He doesn't say go out and hurt it or harm it or destroy it. He says go out, fill it. it your journey is going to involve learning. I'm going to bring to you all the animals and all these different stuff and show you. And you're going to be an apprentice and learn all this amazing stuff I've made. You're going to have a journey of discovery. Like me, because you're made in my image, we're going to delight in it. We're going to say it's good. Wow, this is amazing. I love it. You're going to give pet names to it. I mean, literally, name the animals. They're your pets. And so you have pet names for a tree or a garden or a place. You learn these things and you call them by their names. We were to cooperate with others. He made a helper equal to and out of Adam so that they could work together. So there's this beautiful cooperation to go out with God. So you're perfectly cooperating with God according to his instructions. You have a partner with others. And you were to help one another with this monumental task, monumental, monumental, sorry, task of what God calls cultivating. Cultivating the garden of God. Not exploiting it or extracting it so fully that there's nothing left or destroying it or dominating it or exhausting it, but to see the good in it and to make sure that's fruitful and multiplies. And to see the forces of curse and thorns and despair and anti-shalom and to protect God's creation from it. In other words, to be less self-ish people and to be more shalom-ist as people. Now, to get into the psalm, I'm going to tell you one other story. I'm going to use it as an illustration. Some of you will be familiar with it. It's also in Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 4. It's about the first two brothers, Adam and Eve's children, their names are Cain and Abel. It says right after all this has happened, they've been given this glorious task of shaloming, and yet sin has come into the picture. They've rebelled against God, their father. They didn't follow his instructions, and so everything's going haywire. Everything's going to hell quickly in the world, and there's animosity and enmity and finger-pointing and blame, and then they all go different directions to claim their peace and to put up borders and to be afraid of each other. But Cain and Abel go out, these first brothers, it says, Adam knew his Eve, his wife, she conceived, bore Cain, saying, I produced a man with the help of the Lord. Again, they bore his brother Abel, and Abel, it tells us, was a keeper of sheep. Okay, so he was a shepherd, and he knew them by name, and he took care of them. And Cain, the brother, was a worker of the ground, so he's a farmer. He's out there tilling and taking care of it. In the course of time, they did what they were called to do, which is to take the fruits of their labor in this world and to show God that they loved him more than all things and they loved his creation in the proper way by giving him back the first fruits. 
and worshiping him and spending time with him and with one another in harmony and saying, awesome, what a beautiful, blameless, uh, blemishless sheep you brought. Good job, brother. Man, those turnips are the biggest ones I've ever seen. Way to go, brother. Let's give it to the Lord and share it with one another. This will be amazing. But instead, what happened was, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. Quick aside, there was obviously something about the posture of the heart that Cain had here, uh, and that's how God could discern the difference in their offering, or there was something totally inappropriate about the offering itself. We're not really told, but the idea there is that the Lord says, good job, Abel, but Cain, what's going on, buddy? So it says, Cain was very angry, and his face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to consume you, but you must rule over this. So Cain spoke to Abel's brother. He asked him to come out into his field, and then he snuck up against his brother, and he killed him. The Lord came to Cain, and he said, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, so now you will be cursed from the ground. When you work for the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Instead, you'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, here's what I want to point out. The first death in the history of the world, this supreme act of anti-shalom, is actually a martyrdom. Cain is jealous. Not sure of what. What he has, what he didn't have, how it's going in the farm instead of over there with the sheep. The Lord and his arbitrary little rules or his regard for my brother, his favorite, his lack of love for me, whatever it is, he's angry with God and with his brother, so he goes and he murders him. The first martyr's death in the history of the world had everything to do with shalom and coming short of shalom. This was an anti-shalom act. And so... As we just walk quickly through this text, there's really just two pieces to the psalm. I want to ask, what is persecution? Because this is a psalm about persecution. And the reason I took such time to be careful is that I want us to see it, the whole tapestry. Because when I hear about persecution, for me at least, I get really nervous. On the one hand, there's a lot of churches, you could argue, that have so watered down any sort of commitment to God or to Jesus or these sorts of things. They've wanted to so have so much solidarity with and identify with all of their neighbors and all people, no matter where they're coming from or what their intentions are, that they, they have no reason for anyone to, to be jealous of their offering, right? Uh, I don't usually pick on any other churches. I won't even say which one it is, but I had a church once when I was visiting all these churches in Brooklyn. They say to me, we will never do any kind of creed in our church because it's just too sectarian. We're a community. For all the community. I think that's great if you're called to be just a fellowship for anyone who wants to hang out for whatever purpose. But as a Christian church, we're called to give our uniqueness and our effort and all that we are to God. And so perhaps these people don't experience a lot of persecution because they have nothing different to offer the world than what the world can offer anyways, perhaps. I think what's more dangerous and close to home for people like us in the world we live in is what I call grievance culture. 
This is where you're living in the healthiest, wealthiest society in the history of the entire world, and you're so miserable, and you think that you're a martyr. This is how you can find yourself in your second home in the Hamptons, and just by watching the news, you feel like the whole world hates you, and everyone's out to get you, and you're, and you're just down, and you have no power, and you're such a martyr. And you have to ask these people, well, which Christ are we actually persecuted for? Are we persecuted because we are unique? Not unique, that's not the right word. That we are attempting to love the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus of Nazareth, who himself was persecuted, who had nothing to his name. Jesus of Nazareth, yes. The one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor and the mourning. The one who healed all things, who sacrificed his life, who died, in fact, for us. Or some other Jesus of our making. Some white supremacist warrior Christ, for example. Are we actually being persecuted because we're jerks and we're part of the anti-shalom? Or because we love this Jesus who comes to us? And so the psalm says, when you get to these moments, you need to remember that you're called to shalom. And that the Christ of shalom is the one that you belong to. And so sing this song when you come to places that people don't love shalom. They don't love God. They don't love their neighbor. They don't love this world as this special divine gift. When that happens, sing this. Greatly have they afflicted me ever since my youth. Let Israel now say, that's in the text, let Israel now say this. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Okay? Now this is to whom read Romans 12, the body of Christ. This is where you start to get into, there are so many places in this world that have been destroyed and hurt and exploited and taken care of. Do you love these places? Can you put your work to help them be re-shalomed and protected against the forces that would destroy them? And also, are you with the people who are being anti-shalomed? The people that are truly being persecuted around the world, put to death, marginalized for their faith, murdered by family members sometimes. This is happening every single day. Well, greatly have they afflicted me, let everyone say. Oh, you might be having a fine day. You might be on a nice part of the walk. It might feel like a picnic today, but no, 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 no. Let us, let all of Israel right now say, greatly have they afflicted me. This is my business. This is my people. This is my world that God has given me, and I care for it. Ever since we were little, they've been doing this. Back since Cain and Abel days, they've been doing it. The Old Testament, they've been doing it. The New Testament, they've been doing it. All these years since, they're still doing it. There's these people who care about themselves more than God's shalom. They're like plowers who plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now, this is interesting. Where most nations are called to tend to look back on what they've done and they've achieved and celebrate it, here the psalmist tells Israel to look back and to reflect on and to remember what they've survived together. The world's plowmen plowed long furrows up and down my back. It's an agricultural metaphor. You can see them going through the land, making furrows. It's also a martial metaphor, a metaphor of war, because little Israel had had all these nations come through and plow them down and take their people and destroy them and then leave. It's also an invaded nation image for that reason. And it's meant to be a deeply personal one because he says it's not just that they've done this to our nation They've done it to me. 
And when they did it, it was like they were putting furrows in my back. Picture it. A person of faith lying stretched out prone. The enemies hitch up their oxen and plows, begin cutting long furrows in the back. Long gashes cut into the skin and flesh back and forth systematically like a farmer working a field. This could also be a reference in an image of flogging. And so you have to imagine the whole thing, the blood, the pain, the back and forth cruelty. And we are called to share in and identify this pain. The pain that people want to cause or that they inevitably do cause as they seek their own selfish endeavors rather than shalomist endeavors. And so we are called to share in it, say, it's been done to me and they've been doing it. They're going to keep doing it. They did this to us and it hurts and I feel your pain. And I'm so sorry about what's happening over there in that place. And I'm so sorry what's happening to you. And I'm so sorry that there are forces that seem more powerful than all the forces of God and his people that are arrayed against us to make sure shalom doesn't happen. And I'm so sorry and I feel it too and it hurts. And then we're called to continue to sing, but the Lord, the Lord is faithful. They did all that. They do that, but... He has cut the cords of the wicked. Like the oxen are moving, the farmers are there, but he came and chopped the rope, and now what? I had a friend tell me yesterday he couldn't pull a motorcycle out of a ditch without a rope. Now, they don't have a rope. They can't do us any harm, even though their intention is still the same, to cut these furrows of pain in us as they go about their business. And then it tells us to put this Words in our mouth to close the psalm. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not feel his, fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor does anyone who pass by say what we normally say, which is, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. May none of this happen to those anti-shalom forces. Go ahead and say it. As you're walking up to Jerusalem, as we are pilgriming, making pilgrimage towards Shalom, we are called to look at the forces of anti-Shalom and say, I'm sorry, friends. If you hate the God of Shalom and you hate what he's doing here, then may he frustrate all of your work, your selfish busyness and all the things you're doing and whatever you're working on and what you're about. May the Lord turn that backwards. May it be like grass on the house. And of course, back then, you know, they put sod up there and grass had no roots. And so when there was a hot sun, it would just scorch and dry up real quick, unlike deep roots. He said, let it be like that. Yeah, they're prospering real quick, but man, let it take no root. Let it not last here. Let it not turn into a crop. Instead, let them try and just live not so long with all of their work. No one go around saying, man, may they have a harvest Bless them with with their work. May it prosper. Instead, no. We choose shalom. We choose solidarity with suffering. We choose solidarity and stewardship and servanthood of shalom. And we want the Lord to frustrate the works of those who would keep his shalom from coming into the world. People attend to put crops in our pain this is a phrase from another preacher, but when, when anyone goes out and makes furrows and starts, their intention is to make a crop. And so some people want what is ours. They want to take our dignity or what God would share with us and make it all for themselves and make sure that we feel the pain 
But this tells us that right in that place, God comes into our sorrow, comes into our solidarity, or comes into us with solidarity. And right where the devil wanted to grow despair and affliction, he intends to grow a bumper crop of joy and gladness out of those same furrows. Of course, we know this is true because when God sent his son, the Lord himself not only served shalom his whole life and went without anything so that we could have everything. The Lord gave up his son, his most prized possession, the original it is good, if you will. Gave it up so that we would know his love. He was flogged, in fact. He took the fruits of the thorns on his head and then the whips into his back and he had furrows in them and it says that by his stripes we are healed. That our suffering became his in that moment. So you remember when you experience persecution, let it not be because you feel like, oh, you just don't disagree with the culture and they shouldn't be going about doing their things, although that matters. I'm not trying to say it doesn't matter for you to feel like a minority or to struggle with that. Or much less for our own failures, our own participation in the things that fall short of shalom. But rather, let persecution happen because we are connected to this Lord Jesus. The one who set his face like a flint on Jerusalem to go and bring healing and shalom to the whole world and to reconcile all things. We keep our eyes on shalom one step at a time, asking Jesus to be with us now. Like this very moment that I'm not thinking about what I'm going to build tomorrow, but I'm thinking about this place, maybe in this moment, this pulpit, and you, and this room, and what God is doing even here now, and what he might continue to do through us as we seek to bring his culture of shalom to this place, to this corner, to this neighborhood, for this day, one place at a time. One place at a time, even though we know we will experience persecution. There will be forces we can't control that won't let us do the things we want to do, that will make us cry, that will hurt, and that will bring pain. But that in that moment, we can believe that Christ himself is the farmer. He is the soil. He's the seed. He's the rain. He's the sun. He's actually our body. He's the head from whom all the limbs hold together. And his purpose is a crop in and through us. It says in Romans 8 that the creation itself waits with eager longing for us to be revealed as children of God. That even though right now the creation is subjected to futility, it is waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain its own freedom, the same freedom that we will have as the children of God in glory. And so until that time, Romans says, we should all be groaning together in the pains of childbirth, labor pains, shalom, come into the world, come into my life, come into my Wednesday afternoon, come into my pain. Because if the gates of hell will not ultimately prevail against the advancing kingdom of God, then no force against shalom can ever last. Instead, we become with God priests of our own little places, preparing this world to become for us and for God truly and finally home. And I love how G.K., or not G.K. Chesterton, Gerard Manley Hopkins closed his poem I read you earlier, the Shook Foil poem. 
He left us with a world that no one cared about. They're too busy building their own kingdoms. And how that led to sadness and pain. And he closes with this. But for all of this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last light off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with a warm breast and with ah, bright wings. In the name of the Father and the Son and this Holy Spirit, may God give us shalom as we worship this morning. Amen.